You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition. Now, it's turkey season all over the country right now, and if you're looking for a turkey shot that is just going to slam turkeys dead, you need to check out the Heavyweight TTS. Now, it comes in a variety of gauges, whether you shoot a 410, a 12 gauge, or a 20 gauge, this is the turkey shot for you. A lot of cool things going on with this. It has 22% denser material than a standard tungsten, uh, 56% denser than lead. So what this means is that at longer distances, you're getting higher velocities and a more consistent patterning. It has a full length wad that prevents direct contact off of the extra hard pellets and the bore. And long story short, that protects the barrel. If you want to find out more information about Federal Premium Ammunition, visit federalpremium.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Hey guys, Adam here. If you've listened to the podcast much at all, you know that we love managing for our native plants. Now we're coming up on the tail end of planting season for native grasses and forbs, but it's never too early to start planning ahead. If you're looking to transform your farm and make it more productive for deer, turkey, quail, pollinators, contact the people at Pure Air Natives to find out how you need to get started this spring so you can be setting your property up for years of productiveness and years of benefits with native plants. Check them out at pureairnatives.com. All righty, Hunter, are you there? Yeah, I'm here, Matt. Perfect, perfect. I mean, I'm good. I certainly appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, I think that this this podcast is going to kind of turn on the light bulb for a lot of people, and I hope that you're excited for it. I know that we are, and um, it's kind of one of those topics that I feel like a lot of people have like heard the general phrase co-op, but but they're like cool but I don't know what it means or what it entails. And so it's it's an awesome opportunity for us 
to be able to uh, to bring you on and have you talk about it because you have an existing knowledge, working knowledge of, of co-ops, research, and all these things to be able to add and pull together and really educate private landowners across the country what they are, what the benefit is, and how they can begin to utilize the benefits of forming co-ops. So certainly appreciate your time this evening, and uh, I know that everyone else will. So why don't we just go ahead and get started and allow you to introduce yourself, give us a little bit of information about kind of how you got started. One, just kind of being out in the field, maybe quick upbringing, and then some educational and experiences professionally um, to provide some some uh, background knowledge on on yourself. Yeah, well, thanks, Matt. I, I appreciate it. I, like you said, it's uh, <clears throat> I, I'm really looking forward to this podcast with co-ops and uh, being able to, to shed some light on on the topic um, through my experiences. You know, I grew up in Georgia, uh, northwest Georgia, in a little tiny town, and we uh, grew up on a, on some acreage. Uh, we had 30 acres as a family, and started hunting and fishing with my dad, like a lot of us do. And, you know, through that experience, I got connected with the QDMA. I, mm-hmm. It was funny. I, you know, growing up, my dad, you know, when we were, my first year was a, you know, a four pointer and like a lot of us. And I never really, we never really practiced QDM or, you know, had a co-op or anything like that. And, and growing up, we, you know, that was definitely prevalent. Um, sure. Just going out there, brown us down. That was what we did. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, if you get to, you know, you fast forward a little bit, I turned, I think I was around 10 or 11 and I started you know, wanting to, to harvest large deer and started getting, I got a, I came home and there was uh, my dad went to a, went to a, a hunt club meeting okay. um, down in middle, middle Georgia. And it was a co uh, it was a hunting club, QDM hunt club. And they had this uh, meeting with a, at that point in time, a QDMA biologist. It, it may have been Brian. I, I don't know, but um, they, handed out magazines. He brought a magazine back. I remember sitting in the car looking at that magazine and, and realizing that, Hey, this is, this is totally new. This is something, I mean, this was probably, you know, 2006, 2005. Time sure. range. Yep. Um, and I was, you know, extremely young. I was in middle school and I was just sitting there thinking, this is, this is totally new. This is totally, you know, different from what we've always done. Um, you know, fast forward a little bit, I, I sent an email to the founder of the QDMA, Joe Hamilton, mm-hmm. and I'm saying, you know, this is, you know, I would love to grow up. I, I read every article in there and they were all done by wildlife biologists. And I, I emailed him and I said, Hey, Joe, I would love to, you know, Mr. Mr. Hamilton, you know, yeah. at that age. And I said, <laughs> I would, I would love to, uh, you know, be a wildlife biologist. What classes do I have to take in the school? Sure. I still have that email printed out you oh, know, on cool. the wall pretty yeah. much um, to him. And he, he emailed, back, emailed me back two weeks later. He was in Australia and he said, Hey, we are, uh, you know, Hunter, it's admirable that you're at this age and you know, sixth, seventh grade, whatever it may be. And you're thinking about being a wildlife biologist, you know, I'll do whatever I can to help. So I get, I, I never responded. It took me about two years to respond. You know, I was in middle school, didn't think much of it at that point in time. Email was just coming on the scene and sure. And, I reached back out and I said, you know, I would love to come meet you at a convention and in 2010. Um, I guess three years later at that point, I went up to meet, meet, uh, Joe and Matt and Kip with QMA and met them up at convention and had a, a quick meeting with them. I was doing a, a research project in high school actually, um, for an agri-science fair that we were doing and uh, national agri-science and with whitetails met with them, got some ideas off of them, you know, as they were the, the upper echelon of, your management research who everybody looked up to and wanted to be you know get information from the best and certainly 
<clears throat> we uh, met there and got to meet all of them there. They sat down. They were extremely, you know, nice to sit down with a, a 10th grader at the time. And for almost an hour at the end of their convention, just sit down one-on-one and talk over this, you know, this research project. Um, some kind of that melds together my, my love for research and deer and, and deer management, but got involved there. Um, you know, fast forward another couple of years, I got into UGA, um, graduated from high school at the University of Georgia and my, you know, I still want to be a wildlife biologist, came into UGA and we uh, started, got in, introduced into the, the Warnell School of Forest Natural Resources, got accepted and sort of kept up my relationship with uh, the QDMA and Brian and Joe and I was offered, you know, I, I actually, I was a, <clears throat> I went to conventions for three or four years and I volunteered my time essentially as a worker okay. uh, for free. Yeah and did not expect anything of it just wanted to help help the cause and um as a sophomore in college i was you know given an internship um to help out um so i got involved with qdma that way just through you know selflessness of working and trying to to be involved with them and um started out there in my sophomore year of of college uh stayed there through my second my full my master's at uga so i was there for wow a little over five years working directly with QDMA at conventions. Um, it turned in from an internship into a support services coordinator role, really helped a lot with the youth program there at QDMA. Um, it used to be the Rack Pack and then from, turned into the uh, Field to Fork or the um, the that that youth program. And um, then we, uh, you know, continued into other things where I, I helped start a cooperative at my parents' house back in – 2011, 2012, when I was in high school, um, continued to help go to cooperative meetings, landowner events while I was with the QDMA, kind of as a point of contact when I was in Georgia, when somebody else couldn't go or somebody else didn't have the time. Um, I was, you know, went around and spoke with a lot of landowners, a lot of cooperatives, um, and slowly but surely, you know, met a lot of landowners across the United States and and people with the QDMA. And um, that kind of brings us to you know, last couple of years, I was doing my master's and QDMA um, had some funding and they said, you know, you got the background with cooperatives, um, you know, helping start a cooperative at your house and working with cooperatives. We'd love to have you do this research. And so we got this research and the funding from the U.S. Wildlife Service. And, it, you know, it's it's now my thesis, my master's thesis, which was contributions of deer management cooperatives to wildlife conservation. So uh, we, we did some research with cooperatives from 2016 to 2018. Um, right now, we just sent in for publication, um, and I graduated my master's and my undergrad from UGA in, in uh, fisheries and wildlife management and the master of science and wildlife emphasis. So, nice. fast forward to the current day, I'm now you know employed, gainfully employed as, as a uh, research scientist with uh, with a consulting company that does research with genetics on uh, pine trees and wildlife and, and habitat management across the southeastern United States. So, I'm you know still have a love for this and and um, Definitely still very involved with a lot of cooperatives and, and landowners across the, uni- uh, the southern United States. So that is a, a full, you know, point A to point uh, <laughs> pretty much of how it all started and where I'm at. But um, hopefully that will give us somewhere to, to go from here. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there, there's several launching points I'm sure we could take from that. Um, but what we really want to do is provide the listeners a great understanding of what a co-op is. So you've been working with them pretty extensively throughout the Southeast, your time at QDMA, as well as through your research project at UGA. 
So let's just start with the super basic questions and then we'll work ourselves into the deeper understanding and the value that cooperatives can bring to one managing the landscape as well as managing wildlife populations and different species um, and the ancillary benefits of non-game species as well which everyone knows that we are super big fans of so let's just let provide us with a definition of a wildlife co-op what does that look like so i'll just give you the very first sentence of my thesis is you know the what what a death defines a cooperative and it's a it changes a lot because some people think of it as you know one thing and some people think of it as another and it's it's a very malleable um definition but the qdma actually defines deer management cooperatives as groups of landowners and hunters voluntarily working together to improve the quality of wildlife, habitat, and hunting experiences on their collective acreage. So that can really mean, you know, deer. It can mean other other wildlife, other game species, other non-game species. But in general, as you said, a wildlife cooperative is a group of landowners or hunters voluntarily working together um, to improve the quality of the habitat on their acreages. Right. So... Is there a size parameter? Does it have to be a hundred acres? Does it have to be a thousand acres? Is it just a a hey, we're unified as a group now? It doesn't. No. So a lot of these cooperatives, when they start out, um, for example, I talked about how we started a cooperative at my parents' house and mm-hmm. my, my, my property I grew up on. We had thirty acres. That started with a handshake to a neighbor that owned thirty acres. And to another another neighbor that owned 25 acres, and so essentially you're, I mean, you're sitting at 85 acres right there. You're not at 2,000 acres. You're not at 5,000. They they grow organically, um, and some can grow overnight. You know, if you have a, a cooperative meeting for your local area, people that may be interested, and you go from zero to 500 acres overnight. Sure. Some grow through handshakes, and they grow organically by the people that are in those cooperatives going to the next property over that touches their property out of almost a, a selfish benefit to that person, you know, your property, you want the purple people next to you to practice what you're practicing. So you go to them next and it grows out kind of um, across the landscape in that way. But in, in the end, it does help everybody in, involved. So I think that to answer your question, there's not really any cookie cutter size um, kind of coming back to the research a little bit in the research that we found the, the cooperatives we looked at. Um, we looked at 45 cooperatives across five states, and the average cooperative size varied greatly across areas, which is most likely due to land use sure. changes, as well as generational. You know, how many generations has that land been broken up by? Yeah. You know, how quickly have we been? How long have people been there? How many generations have they subsequently been broken up by through passing down to the next generation? And it gets put into four tracks instead of one, or six tracks instead of one. Um, and so you have to look at some of those things, but I think that, uh, you know, some of these in Georgia averaged well over 5,000 acres while others in other parts of the country averaged, uh, 3,000 acres. And you all, and and there's there's no cookie cutter way of how they, they form on the landscape when you're looking at as in shape and everything. It can shape. Yeah. yeah. So if you're looking from an aerial, like let's say you take your property, you take a, you know, hunter map, whatever it may be, and you put that on the lands, uh, and you look at it from a, an aerial on Google mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and that's, it's not a square. It's not, you know, a contiguous body of, of land, area of land. Sure. Um, in some parts of the world, it's a very scattered, almost shotgun approach where you take a an area 
for example, Michigan had a lot of these where you take an area that's a focal area and you say, we want to get as many properties in this five mile radius or this three mile radius on this management plan as possible. Where in Georgia, almost every single, every single cooperative that we worked with was a private landowner that worked to grow it from a centralized area and they were always touching. Mm. There was hardly ever a piece of property that was on an island by itself off the side of the co-op. Um, it was always through handshakes, through people going door to door with their neighbor, their neighboring hunting club, whoever it was. And and that really, from a conservation utility standpoint, is, is really key um, by connecting these landscapes. Um, but to answer your question, there's no cookie cutter size. Um, you're looking at, you know, you can have a cooperative, and we actually had one in this research that was 80 acres. And you've got one that, you know, can be 29,000 acres. So you've got this broad range of sizes, but the average cooperative size is somewhere between three and 5,000 when you take out state and area and region of, of land use. So that's a considerable amount. And, and it's like, I think the constant reminder that we have to, that we have to go with from the beginning is just because the average may be three to 5,000, they're probably all starting with with one parcel or just two For people sure. talking, and it will grow over time. And I think that, that one that's that's one an important reminder. But two, Rome wasn't built in a day, and every I, and I'm sure that you've heard this over and over and over again in your research and in your finding is. Everyone plays this neighbor game of, oh, well, my neighbor does this. Well, well, my neighbors do this. And I don't know if I've ever really chatted with landowners who speak highly of a neighbor that they don't know. It's like it's like they always assume the worst of the neighbor that they don't have that personal relationship with you know what i mean like it's just like oh th- that's that's how they are they they get categorized right off the bat because well they're a neighbor to to and they have a similar interest and, and it's like yeah but i know that there's probably more similarities than there are differences out there how many times did you run across that when whether it's your personal experience of starting a co-op or it's through this research that you heard others discuss that? Well, you hear that quite a bit. Um, but what I've been extremely uh, happy to start seeing is once you get past that initial, you know, you find one or two people that want to be on a co-op with you. Mm-hmm. You shake hands with them and you have this open line of communication. Yes. Once you have that open line of communication – you know, one of the things that we, you know, I'll, I'll just go back to my personal co-op, kind of give it some baseline, you know, things that I've personally dealt with um, in forming a cooperative and what I've seen others do. But, um, you know, we share, you show, we share trail camera pictures. We yeah. share, uh, you know, sightings. We share, you know, if somebody, if one person on the co-op is a trapper, you know, we let them all trap our properties. If, sure. You know, whatever it may be. And, and having that trust with your landowner and letting them know, like, it's not extending that olive branch is saying, here's my, here's a picture of what we have on our property. Now, yeah, yeah, usually they become a little bit more open to saying, well, here's what we have on ours. And then you open those lines of communication and the doors fall down, you know, the, the fences fall down and you're, you're more willing to say, Oh, well, I know that Joe over here or that, that uh, Kevin over here is, is doing this and they saw this and it gives you a point of, of, of 
almost a, a feeling of community. Sure. Um, that you know your neighbors, and, and usually it leads to success through being able to actually have a few of those things open up, a few of those connections open up, and it gives you confidence that not everybody's like that, that you can go do that. And then what you see is the people that, you know, for example, you're in the middle of the cooperative and you got your landowners around you that are on board. Then those landowners around you start seeing the same thing and they go to the landowners next to them. Sure. And it kind of breeds, maybe it's slow, maybe it's organic, like I said, and and it may take, you know, we started out at 30 acres and, and two landowners right beside us at 80. And now we're at we're right at 1,200 acres in Georgia. So we're well below the average. But it's taken us almost 10 years to get to 1,200 acres. But the crazy thing is we went from 600 acres to 1,200 acres in two years. So yeah. it's, that, it's yeah. that just having those connections, having somebody on the outside of the cooperative make a connection. Definitely. And, and and, ha- and and doing these things that allow you to grow and, and sometimes grow exponentially in a short amount of time. Um, but I, I do hear that, like you said, of getting, uh, you know, I don't want to talk to my, I don't want to my neighbor this or he'll start hunting the property line. Or I don't want to do this because, because they'll do that. Yeah, you hear that all the time. And Certainly. I did hear it some, but what I found most interesting was a lot of these cooperatives have yearly meetings. Okay. And, and, and that's a great, that's a great kind of question. Do you find, because everyone is, is super busy, like, you know, we've, we've got a QDMA branch here, um, finding volunteers and finding those people um, to fill roles and occupy among their busy, busy life is, is, is it's difficult. So as you discuss this topic um, or your thought process there, kind of work us through what it takes to organize and run and, and as a group what's kind of like the expectation from a uh, meeting standpoint? What does that look like? So if there's someone out there, they, they want to know what's the commitment to starting a co-op in their area. So to have a cooperative, you don't have to have a meeting. I don't want that to be one of those things where I say, well, we have to have a meeting to be formal. Sure. You don't have to, you can have a handshake. It can be kind of, and that's what a lot of these cooperatives are doing. They're on the landscape. Yep. Acting as a cooperative and they are not being picked up by state DNRs. Mm-hmm. They are not being um, picked up by conservation organizations. They're not being they're, like there. I can't tell you there was probably 50 percent of the cooperatives in Georgia alone were cooperatives that I knew of through other cooperatives that knew somebody in a co-op that was on a landscape doing this without influence from, you know, a, a DMAT program, a deer management assistance program sure. or, without a conservation organization. Um, so I think that that tells us that there is a large need for some type of, um, you know, database or some type of group for these cooperatives. Now, yeah. I think that we, with, with these cooperatives and going back to the meeting, like you said, you don't have to have a meeting every year. Um, but to actually do this meeting, I think that we always get caught up in fact that we don't have time and I'm guilty sure. of it. You know, I have a full-time job. I'm extremely busy, travel all across the Southeastern United States, but you find time for these cooperative meetings because when it comes down to it, if I go to a meeting for an NGO, which is great banquet, whatever it be, mm-hmm. I, I encourage listeners to go um, and support conservation, but you're not, a, that money's going to the greater good, which is great. But when you have a co-op meeting, it's something more personal. You're having sure. your neighbors come. You're, you're, you are positively impacting your ground in one Absolutely. night. And it's not a, 
we're in this for the greater good. It's a we're in this for the greater good of my community, of my neighbors, of my like this point on the map that I am managing, that I'm spending my putting my blood and sweat and tears into to produce a food plot, prescribe burn, to do timber stand improvement, whatever it may be. I'm getting a positive impact the next day, whether that be one more landowner that's on board or somebody that may be, you know, thinking about this in a different way than they did the day before when they came to that meeting. So I find it more interesting and actually more rewarding to have a meeting with my neighbors because I know that I'm having a positive influence on my piece of ground, which is what land legacy is all about. So I think that is, is a real key takeaway here because you can have, you know, it's, it's hard to find extra time, but you're, you know, if you're a land manager, if you're a deer hunter, a deer manager, a wildlife conservationist, and you have a piece of property and you're managing it for the four set species of wildlife or a suite of species, this is something that can help your property overnight. And it's not, you know, you can find time for that. And, and it's just like you can find time to plant a food plot or you can find time to do this or that. So I think that's uh, my, always what I, how I talk about it with people when I come in contact, but I do, like you said, I think that um, just opening those barriers and, and having an open line of communication is huge um, uh, for forming these. And then having the, the meeting every year keeps a form of uh, cohesiveness, mm-hmm. um, but, mm-hmm. but also it is a good opportunity to learn what your neighbors are seeing. It's a good opportunity to learn um, who their neighbors are, if you may not know them. And I've had many instances where I go to these meetings that I help put on or that I have um, been integral an integral part with um, throughout the last few years and there'll be an extra you know one or two people that's not in the co-op they invite every year absolutely and just say just come just come experience this with us come have a barbecue sandwich with us come have a coke let's let's talk about this just like a camp you know that hunting heritage tradition type thing of being able to, to sit around a campfire and and experience this and it's funny because this past year this past fall one of my largest co-ops um, in middle of georgia they had this meeting and they had this one guy that came and he had, let's say he had leases to a, to a 1500 acres. Mm-hmm. We, we pulled up a map. It's the first time they had ever pulled up a map in front of everybody. And the guy said, Oh, I know who owns that. He's already practicing QDM. I know the guy that owns that. He's already practicing QDM. And overnight we added 2000 wow. or a thousand uh, acres. And that, and, and that didn't happen necessarily. That just happened because of a conversation. That Correct. just happened because people were were open about sharing some aspects of knowledge that they have about a given region. And I think that once someone carries the torch and says, I'm starting this, I'm going to get going, the door, it's kind of like a domino effect is like, I, I'm I'm sticking my neck out there on the chopping block. And I'm 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 revealing a little bit of secrets. I'm kind of pulling the, mm-hmm. the curtains back and letting people see kind of inside what's happening. But the I'll say this from a from a habitat, from a wildlife management perspective, people out there who are listening, that is the one of the best things that you can do. We're not saying, oh, here here's that buck I passed, here's that five and a half year old deer I've got oh, I've got three of them on my place. That doesn't have to be the opening line. The opening line is just, hey, here's what I would like to be able to do in the region or in our neighborhood. I'm I'm implementing these types of techniques. I want to reach out. Where do you fall? Are, are, are you wanting those same things? If not, that's okay. But But maybe we can just have or get into a deeper conversation about that. But if you don't start, 
you're never going to get there. And from a land mass standpoint, as we continually talk about habitat and the, the impact that good quality habitat can have for these species and that you're trying to pursue or that you're just wanting to observe on a property, you're only going to get a effect of, okay, let's just say you're managing 120 acres where you can make that 120 acres the best that it can be. But, but what happens outside of those borders is also very, very important. When we manage a property, we, we take into account a neighborhood and the land use that occurs in that neighborhood. We're not just managing strictly on what's in your borders, but also what's outside of those borders as well. And that's important to remember um, so you've, you've got to go to your neighbors and have this just open conversation about what the heck's going on. And, and I know I've seen it work and, and we've got some folks over in kind of West Virginia, Ohio area, and they're probably chuckling now as I tell them, but I would call them an, an, an unofficial co-op. They don't, they don't touch borders, but there's seven or eight landowners who all want to get together and just enjoy conversation share resources and um, share stories about hunting, what they've experienced or struggles or um, wins when it comes to managing the landscape on their respective properties. But as the crow flies, even though they're in between two different states, there might only be 15 miles apart at most from each other. And so it's just getting people together to start sharing about the impacts that everybody can have the the co-op i i try and like look at like let's say both sides of the picture of like pros versus cons and and i'm i have a very tough time coming up with a con list of this i'm like why isn't this bigger those people who care about wildlife and ecosystems and because I, I don't know if we don't use the term often a lot, uh, but like when we're managing properties and we're talking about, you know, we'd like to see this function as a, as a greater ecosystem. We're talking about micro ecosystems. Ecosystems are regions, neighborhoods, big, huge areas of, of this habitat type or vegetation type plant communities. But we can have that impact if people adopt this co-op mindset. And, and, and what do you think... Hunter is is like the reason why we don't see that enough out there. We've got pockets, and your research has shown um, what was it? It twelve different states that that co-ops are are a thing right now. Is that is that what you were seeing there? Well, we our research was in five states right now. Sure, um, but but we, I mean, I know of cooperatives that are happening across the, the southeastern United States yep. that, are, that are not part of this research. We, what we did. Um, to kind of frame it in so where people kind of kind of know when you when you reference it is we had five states georgia um, missouri new york michigan and texas and each one of those was a representative state of the region so mm-hmm. georgia for the southeast texas for the southwest of the whitetails region sure, um, sure so trying to get an idea of what was happening on the landscape from a landscape uh context and as well as demographic context across the whitetails range as kind of a representation so these cooperatives are happening all across the landscape, not just in these five states. Um, but for the research, we had to limit it to some point to be able to have large enough data sets to actually run statistics and do mm-hmm. things like that. So 
Um, but kind of going back a little bit, and, and I'll touch on your point here in a second, but you, you talk about the neighborhood. And one of the things that we like to refer to in from a, a landscape ecology standpoint is the neighborhood effect. You get this essentially from a population dynamics you know, standpoint, you yep. get this effect of having high quality habitat and it overspills into the neighboring property. So I think that not only from a neighborhood effect, essentially by word of mouth with people, you're getting it from a landscape context, like you were saying. So when you're looking at landscape ecology and how these work, we are able to increase connectivity because essentially you are creating quality habitat across the landscape on this in this organic manner. When I say organic, I mean you know up river valleys, yep. down you know ridges, um, across you know areas that that usually what we found were areas that may be lower. Uh, price per acre areas, areas that are used for hunting clubs, areas that are not in ag, areas that are fully utilized for wildlife conservation that make sense that, to connect already um, that we were seeing in some of these states. Um, none of that's quantified, but just kind of what you're seeing on aerial. And what what's really important is from a lot of a lot of states, and I can speak from example here in Georgia, they have these management plans for specific, specific species. Let's say mm-hmm. it's quail or the Bob White Quail Initiative or whatever it may be, and they use these local focal landscapes and they try to utilize um, public lands and uh, DMAP or other, you know, private landowners that are working with them to increase quality habitat in this area, in this given area. And cooperatives are a great way to actually increase that connectivity physically. I mean, you're, you're adding, you're creating a, for example, a 29,000 acre block of land that's being managed for wildlife um, that's having prescribed fires, early sessional habitat, um, timber, you know, timber harvest. You're getting these stems, you're getting these timber stand improvements, you're getting food plots, you're getting these, these edge effects. And so a lot of the things that we looked at um, to kind of put the research in a little bit more context was like edge density, sure. pass density, uh, interspersion and juxtaposition. All these things that from a sound like jargon, um, but from a ecological side are, are extremely important. So I think um, looking at that effect that you're talking about from a landscape and not just on that one single property on this this micro uh, site, you're getting a full holistic view of the landscape and how these populations are interacting across the landscape. And being able to influence that is so key to being able to have a quality wildlife management program that benefits everyone within that landscape. And I think that's really where co-ops shine. Absolutely. And I think it's so important for everyone to like, we got to pound this home because if we don't pound this home, then, then we're not going to see these, these co-ops one, maybe just start in your area or grow if you're already in one. But those folks who are out there and they're managing the landscape or they're, they're manipulating the habitat to some degree, you can't tell me, let's just say you've got 100 acres and you're starting to go out there and you're working it, you're working hard, you're seeing the wildlife respond. I talked to a guy today, he owns 27 acres and um, he has gone through and just done complete TSI this whole winter. He's cutting cedars, he's cutting hackberry elm, this is in eastern, uh, northeastern Nebraska and um, told a story, a quick story, he's like, I don't know how deer were maneuvering through it so thick and dense with all the stuff I've got but um, it was snowing I saw 13 deer and a nice buck come through and they're feeding on all the tops that I that I cut the gentleman's got 27 acres 
in in an area that is um, heavily ag. It is um, great corridors for wildlife. But he went in to 27 acres and hit that and aggressively went in and created a, a new resource and has seen these deer, despite it being kind of t- difficult to navigate at this current time, deer had in, uh, sightings and um, activity has drastically increased just by doing that on 27 acres. So those guys out there who are putting this stuff to work and are seeing these the wildlife basically respond on your 100 acres, you know that, like you've seen it. So take that model or take take your mindset out of 100 acres because sometimes it's like 100 acres can be overwhelming for, for some people who have full-time jobs to manage and all this stuff. But go 10 times that amount of land. That's 1,000 acres. Now imagine all the benefit that you've replicated on just 100 acres and go to a 1,000 acre scale. You've got to change like your scale of where your mind's at. You're so focused on your property, which is great, but but take your property and multiply it by ten. Imagine imagine how good that neighborhood's going to become. And a thousand acres, from what you're saying, Hunter, is is still a third of what the low end of the average co-op can be across the country. So it's like we 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 are so caught up. Let's just say in our personal property that it's it's hard to get out of that mindset and begin to think on a scale that is is hard to fathom and manage but when you do that the degree of impact is so so grand and i think that there's probably a lot of other maybe maybe neighbors that are wanting to be able to go and do this work but they don't know how to get started. Maybe you can be that person to help them get going, or you've got a, a contact um, list of, of preferred contractors that you can pass along to these other people from a, a co-op standpoint. That's another humongous pro. And I, I know, Hunter, we've spoke on this in the past, but you've seen you know, the ability for a contractor to come into a co-op, let's say a contractor from Prescribed Fire to TSI, to food plotting, to a logger, you come in now that you have a, a, a cumulative group of like-minded landowners, you might have the benefit of, of hiring a dozer guy for six months just to work on all your co-op land. Or a logger, he hopped from one property to another property and to another property to another one. Right there in a, in a focal small unit of, of, of land, he's probably going to give preferred prices because he doesn't have to travel and mobilize as much. Like there's yeah, just so, so many benefits, man. Yeah, no, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, one of the biggest things we've seen, and I'll, I'll give you a few examples real quick, but, you know, one co-op I work with, they have a, a layer on a mapping, you know, G, uh, Google Earth or, mm-hmm. or Art app or whatever it may be that they're using, and they keep a layer of what they've burned across their landscape. Now they're in they're in the quail woods and they you know they do a lot of prescribed fire sure. but they're trying to look at their let's say twenty thousand acre cooperative mm-hmm. mimic what a lot of these large plantations that are twenty and thirty thousand acres are doing as individual landowners that own a thousand sure. or own five hundred and so they can get the benefit now granted you're not hunting your neighbor's property but you're getting the population scale benefit population level um, benefit from that connectivity and the, the refuge that it gives the, let's say quail or fawns or whatever it may be. 
Um, so you're getting that, and they have this list, this this map they share among their cooperative members that, uh, hey, we burned this this year, or we burned that this year, and they can keep an idea of what's getting burned on what part of the cooperative, which helps with interspersion, mm-hmm. it helps with disturbance, and then not only that, but when you mention being able to have a logger come, they're not going to come to a property. We, we're into a lot. I mean, I'm in forestry, and yeah. we're a forestry consultant business, and a lot of our properties, if people come to us and they say, we've got 20 acres, 30 acres, we're like, well, sorry, it's not worth the logger's time yeah. to come sit on a property, move the equipment there, and then lose a day moving equipment on both ends yep. to make a little bit of money and cut it in the day. Because they can cut large acreages in, in a short amount of time depending on what's there. So sure. being able to, to actually aggregate properties and then do timber sales or timber thins, uh, whatever that may be on that property – incentivizes loggers to come in and do habitat management that might not otherwise be done. Absolutely. So I think that people don't see the whole benefit that can happen when you think about having those large acreages, because not only, you know, are you getting the benefit of having them come and do this 10% improvement, if it's a thin for Southern pine plantation or, um, you know, reduce spatial area to get down these, these very low, you know, mm-hmm. uh, open evergreen systems, um, that are maintained with fire, but you're getting all those landowners then get checks. I yeah. mean, yeah. you're getting the revenue that you not we would not have gotten that they can put back into those properties if they see fit to increase the quality of the habitat and the management that they get to do, whether that means hiring a contractor if they don't have time mm-hmm. to put in fire breaks or to hire a contractor to come in and um, a, a trapper, you know, to, to trap. 10,000 acres on a large scale in the spring for, for nest predators or coyotes or whatever that may be, whatever they want to spend their money on that they think they don't have time to do that having that connection across property boundaries allowed them to do that. Absolutely. So I think it, it's something people don't think about. The other thing that is hugely important is, and we utilized it like yesterday was working with the landowner for a prescribed fire line, a neighboring landowner. How many times do you are you looking at like habitat types? You're like, man, that would be really nice if if I didn't have to put in a firebreaker on this, you know, five hundred acre, five hundred yard uh, line. I'd like to be able to go to my neighbors and use their road system that's just right there. They haven't burnt in a couple of years. You have the ability because there's open lines of communication to be able to utilize that and be able to burn. And have contractors come in and burn if you don't have the experience. Um, the high, the the more acreage um, or the the ease of a fire because you have permanent fire breaks, you can get better rates on prescribed fire per acre with most um, contractors. So there's just there's not only financial benefits of doing all this. There's there's obviously the habitat is improved, and then the wildlife benefits are are incredible. And we yeah. we talk about a lot about um, in in the past. I know you you've chatted with him, and I think actually probably um, professor of yours, but um, uh, Michael Chamberlain, and the research that we 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 um, had a podcast on. We were at NWTF. Is listen, turkey populations and and rearing of turkeys. They're covering large land masses. Quail can cover larger land masses than a lot of people think. Average home range for deer, and we're not talking core area, talking home ranges. We're in the five, six hundred acre mindset. Like that, that's that's 
territory wise acreage oh, yeah. what we're what we're talking about so it's only advantageous to work with others in close proximity to you yeah no for sure i think um and i know i know dr chamberlain well i think you know he kind of hits home on that with with even not only turkey um home ranges but when you look at like trying to institute predator trapping and oh my gosh that's a whole nother story but and i mean just looking at the downfalls that you can have there sure you're having a big impact on on that acreage when you could be having an impact on a larger scale at a certain time window to help certain uh species you know whether it be fawns or or quail or or nesting you know nesting up on birds whatever that may be sure i think that the the other thing that you kind of hit that we may have forgot about is you don't you don't just get the financial input um or the the open line of communication you really get a sense of community and possibly a friend i mean sure at a just at a, a simple level those relationships can turn into some of the best relationships that you ever had with Found people out. that are like-minded that are deer hunters turkey hunters you know habitat managers that you uh that you have right in your backyard that you know if you need a if you need help you know for example in our cooperative back home um our neighbor has a bobcat skits deer we mm-hmm. don't if yeah. we need a, if we need a fire break put in there you go if we need a field cleared out a food plot put in he's willing to do that we'll go over and um you know we do some trapping on his property. You know, sure. we, it's kind of trading services, not really trading, but you know, kind of you do you help your person, they help you. Yeah, you help your neighbor. They're going to find so, value in your skill set, and you find yeah. value in, in his equipment. And if they equal out, well, gosh, that's a perfect fit. For sure, for sure, and, and it builds just those relationships. So I think that's that's really the key thing that we, we bring it back to. And, and a lot of our, our research, we not only looked at landscape um, demographics or mm-hmm. landscape, you know. Uh, composition what was on actually on the landscape we we looked at we did a survey to over 2800 co-op members across those states and looked at their satisfaction with their deer hunting prior to prior to cooperative formation and currently we looked at what their motivations were we looked at all these different things um that that impact cooperatives because from our aspect and and from what we've been talking about Mm -hmm. you get you, you obviously see the landscape benefits. You see that there's these, you know, and if you dive into the research, you can see there's um, increases of certain land covers sure. and that you're getting more, more edge of certain land covers. You're getting more, you know, more patches of these land covers. Fragmentation. And, then and, and yeah, you, you, you can, that can obviously increase biodiversity and different things that you're thinking about uh, from habitat management and wildlife management, but you're getting that. And so by a function of getting that, what is creating successful cooperatives? Because if we want to get that as an output, let's say in our re- in our conservation um, utility, is increased conservation on the landscape by private landowners across the United States. Yeah. How do we make them successful? And that starts with people. So you have to look at what the landowners are getting out of it. What is their motivations for cooperatives? And then how do you make them successful? Because there's co-ops that have started and failed. Sure. And I've got a feeling that, you know, with the generational shift, um, a lot of our, the average age of our co-op members in this research was in their mid, mid to late fifties. And you're going to see that it's an increasing challenge, that next generation taking on these properties yeah, and being connected to the properties um, and, and creating a, a continuing that cooperative. So looking at what makes them successful, what makes them start, what makes them tick, that's how you get the recipe to create that same success across the landscape. So we looked at both sides of that, which is 
kind of what we've been hitting on this entire time about the, the human aspect and what the motivations are, but it's important to realize one leads to the other and why they're both important. Yeah, w- without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, so what, what are some of the, like the overall, do you, do you have numbers to, to provide from the hunter satisfaction that, that increased pre-co-op um, and, and post or being a part of a co-op? Yeah, so um, there's been some research done. Um, some Mitterling did some research up in Michigan and, and found an increase in, in cooperative hunter satisfaction. Um, we actually found some that mirrored just like she did. It was mm-hmm. about a 15% increase in overall satisfaction um, on a 0 to 100 scale um, from prior to cooperative formation to post-co-op formation or current day. Um, so you're looking at about 57% were satisfied with what they were hunting, which is almost a flip of a coin, a little higher than that. Sure. Um, all the way up to 73% roughly wow. um, that were satisfied. So when you get when you think about the satisfaction of what these cooperatives are providing to their members, that's what's important. But the craziest thing is that you know you think, and, and I think we all get lulled in this this idea that all deer hunters are all QDMers or all whoever they're they're all the same. They all want the same thing. They just want big deer. They want more wildlife. They want. But it's funny. We we were looking and we did some uh, cluster analysis on this research to figure out based on <clears throat> motivational questions. We gave them a, a, a wide array of motivational questions to see how they answered, and we were actually able to parse out what motivation group a group of respondents was based on how they answer these questions. Mm-hmm. And we found there was four distinct uh, groups in this research. So they're not all the same. And what, what's so important about that is that you don't get a cookie cutter co-op member. You've got people that are coming into these cooperatives from multiple different um, backgrounds and, and trying to figure out what they what they want to gain from these cooperatives. They all have different, different uh, motivations for that. Sure. And they all answer kind of similarly. And what's funny is we kind of grouped them into four categories and without getting into too much jargon of the research. It's we had these members that were really focused on solitude. Mm-hmm. They're really focused on. And then we had another group that was really focused on social um, okay. members. And then we had a group that was pretty large. that was quality harvest. It was really, really uh, motivated by the quality of the deer they harvested because these sure. were deer management cooperatives. And then we had a representative member that really was motivated by almost all of it. So kind of the, the fully bought in, you know, maybe land and legacy type, you know, sure. client or whoever maybe that you think of as the normal client. Mm-hmm. Um, they were definitely a, a large percentage, but we found these three other groups that kind of were on their own. And, and it's funny because, you know, when you think about the number of people we had in this in the survey, um, we had roughly five, 440 responses out of the 2,800 people that we, we sent out to. That yeah. We actually got some response from, but you know, these, those groups were slightly smaller. You had about 40, 50 people in the solitude members. You had about 80, 80 to 85 members and social, social members. And you had uh, 90, 91 members in quality harvest. And you had 210 to 215 in that representative member. So sure. there is, I think it goes without saying that, not everyone in that cooperative is the same. They're not coming in for the same reasons mm-hmm. and different things are going to satisfy that member. So having a, you know, diversity of points of what we're trying to accomplish, not just quality deer, not just 
quail populations, not just non-game, but having all those into one with a wildlife cooperative, wildlife management cooperative is so important with actually getting these things to take that next step. Because I think deer hunters are practicing them across the landscape at a pretty good rate. Maybe not everybody, sure. not everywhere, but that's where they, they started because people realize they can't grow mature deer heart, you know, extremely regularly yep. without working with your neighbor unless you own a lot of land. And I think that that is one of those things that's, that spurred cooperatives and deer management cooperatives and QEM cooperatives. But taking the next step and integrating other uh, needs in there, other motivations for the, the member that may not just be there for the, the quality mature buck, that may not be there for you know the big turkey, whatever that may be. Um, so I think that's, that's important looking at it and realizing that we are – um, a diverse, they are a diverse group of, of deer hunters and land managers that occupy these things and create these things on the landscape. Yeah. And I think, I think that's also super refreshing to people who may be apprehensive and say, well, that's, that's not, that's not necessarily for me. That's just a trophy deer hunter, or maybe that co-ops are, are just for this group, whatever it may be. There's, there's room for everybody. And, um, you know, my, my mind just goes right back to that, um, that private landowner who who's sitting there in the tree stand and, and hearing all the gunshots around him opening day. And, and he's just sitting there discouraged and disappointed. And everyone's like, yeah, I've been there. I, I know that feeling. I know what it's like. Guys, when that shot rings off, if you're a part of co-ops, that's more of like, wow, I wonder which deer they got. Or it's, yeah. I know I, it's a refreshing, like encouraging, Hey, that's my friend. He just probably, harvested a great deer good for him like it's a positive thing it's not like a oh i have to sit there and wonder what's going on or hey everyone's everyone's kind of roughly on the same page on the same board and i I know how much deer move across the landscape and utilize different portions of of properties um and, and just home range sizes i'm like if i'm surrounded if i'm sitting on 100 acres and i'm surrounded by um a lot of great neighbors i'm sitting there thinking during the rut i don't know what's coming i don't know what mm-hmm. could show up but i know that it could be good rather than saying oh the only the only chance i've got is a basket six coming by me if it comes from the north because they shoot anything over there it's like no, you don't have to play those games anymore. You don't have to sit there and wonder. Yeah, like you, you, there's a there's a peace of mind that can come from this. And I know that's kind of like selfish, but we're all out there to have fun and be successful. I get that. I'm I'm just as guilty, but maybe that's your fuel to get going. I think but once you see the camaraderie, once you see the habitat and you see that open line of communication begin to take place and unfold, I don't, I don't see like a, a, a regret like happening. And I don't know if you have research on this Hunter. Um, and I'd be surprised if it was substantial, but like you have people who are like, eh, like kind of like backpedaling out of a co-op situation or is it more like you don't, you don't see like co-ops decrease in size. Do you? Not really. I mean, when we're looking at, at across landscape, there was a few that we would contact that would say, well, we're really kind of going through a flux year mm-hmm. where you've had management, you know, the person that was really kind of heading ours up is either passed away or I has see. quit doing it sure. or is kind of in limbo. And you would get that. But what we saw was, you know, with that increased satisfaction level, people that were in these cooperatives were extremely happy about them. And they were 
they were happy they were getting recognized because they were sure. sitting there on the landscape doing these things for the betterment of wildlife, not being picked up by state DNRs for the most part. Now, mm-hmm. Missouri Department of Missouri Department of Conservation does a great job. Yeah. But yep. when you look at somewhere in the South, for example, in Georgia or you know other states, they might not utilize them as much. They might just have them. You know, a lot of them do utilize them in their DMAP programs. They do utilize them for um, getting some. Um, news and, and regulations and and in Michigan's a great example. QDMA's talked about this a lot with the the CWD testing. They oh, use sure. cooperatives to help facilitate CWD testing. But I think that not only can you utilize them for things like that, but you can really utilize them for your your landscape, you know, non-game management. You can mm-hmm. utilize them for all these different things that people are not utilizing them for currently. I mean, when we looked at the just for example, the seven cooperatives that we worked with in Georgia, when you overlay them on a map. The George DNR has a map that mm-hmm. of their focal land. It's like a, a layer, a raster layer in art map yep. of their their focal landscapes of conservation importance, and where they're trying to focus their efforts for all wildlife because of con- connectivity. Yeah, and when you overlaid our seven co-ops on that map, every single one but one hit right on a high importance area, and wow. I thought that was just too crazy to be coincidence like we didn't you know we don't have and i I showed it in all my research uh powerpoints you know the the product the proximity to these areas sure and you know that kind of brought it full circle for me to realize that these are you know they're not they might not have a a contact at the the dnr local office they might not have a contact with the private lands program whatever state they're in and they're they're forming on landscape by themselves i think you know you you asked about them going kind of backwards or backpedaling out of these cooperatives most everybody that i'm you know either in my cooperative or i work with they are fully engaged and they are wanting to grow it they just there's that limitation of time Mm -hmm. there's the limitation of resources and then there's also apprehension at some points of how big do we want to get sure because you know obviously you have um, power in numbers to some extent but also it increases the the meeting sizes it increases all these things so that's why I think when you're looking at that acreage, it varies across states. You know, Georgia, and I mentioned at the beginning, the average co-op size ranges from like three to 5,000 acres. But the average co-op size in Georgia was 9,000 acres. The average cooperative size in Missouri was 3,000 acres. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge, um, you know, difference across the landscape and how the, I think, the social dynamics come into play. Um, and how not only that, but, you know, landscape um you know, landscape configuration as well as property parcel configuration come into play um, and land use changes. Um, obviously, you're going to have more row crops, more managed exotic grasses for, for hay or whatever that may be in the in the Midwest or in the Northeast where you may not have – you're going to have a higher a, – a climate that's not as, you know, row crop heavy maybe in the south compared to some other parts of the nation. Um, so you get these differences in landscapes that really are profound when you start looking at landscape uh, configuration and quantifying that. So I think that you're not really seeing a, a people backpedaling as much as they're just working under the radar. Yeah. They're flying under the radar and nobody's talking about them. And those that are, are not talking about them in, in a holistic context of wildlife and connectivity and utilizing for that, they're in their own silos. So I yeah, think that's, definitely. that's where we can really, um, take that next level um, approach to, to wildlife management cooperatives. Yeah, without a doubt. And, and you know, just, you know, candidly speaking, 
you know, a guy, guys like Adonai, like if, if, if someone, a landowner has just a hundred acres and they're trying to reach out or they want to reach out from, from an assistance standpoint, a consultation, um, maybe they aren't able to, to do it from a, a, a financial standpoint and they say, well, maybe if I'm part of a co-op and I've got a hundred, I mean, uh, um, 10 other guys, we've got a thousand acres, we can all pitch in. I only pay a tenth of the price, but they come and do a thousand acres. They improve all of this. Now, now we've got the ability to make this thing work. And, and you just, you put more fuel on the fire um, and making sure that as a co-op, as a collective, you're moving forward in the right direction and have a strong plan of attack moving forward. And um, I, it's just, it's just crazy. The, the, um, the amount of benefits and, and, you know, I, I know that there's, there's no just like cumulative group is, is trying to educate and communicate and pull data from all these different co-ops across the country. Um, but when you, when you look at it, like those, there's such a rare breed of, of groups, landowners or land masses that could provide critical data for, you know, harvest records, observation um, you know, tree stand sits, you know, predator uh, influences, uh, all these different data points that would be great for state agencies. You know, when when you look at, I guess, other land masses that hold such large um, areas, really it's it's military bases and, and large, large um, landowners, but maybe they don't have the record keeping uh, that, that these guys do. So uh, to me... They play a big role, and, and truthfully, I think from not only a real estate point of view, but also a land and wildlife management perspective, co-ops are the are the like the thing of the future. Like they're going to only increase in in as I I guess looking forward five ten years in prevalence because if we don't, the land sizes and and the potential downward trend of, of some things that we're seeing, we're, we're going to have to come together. We're going to have to have that sense of community and that sense of working together collectively as, as a unit, unified goal um, to make the impacts that we're wanting to see on the landscape. You know, we always hear about, oh, the good old days, this and that. I, I don't want to, you know, I'm not being negative, but if we if we want to keep the good old day mentality and the success of hunting, we are going to have to reach across the property line and shake a hand and work together. And especially in states, um, let's say such as uh, Michigan, where your your property size is eighty to 40, 40 to eighty acres. That's a big chunk. Like it's very very common for multiple hunters to be on twenty and thirty acres, and so you've got to work with larger groups of, of people, I think, to make this habitat, vegetation, plant community, landscape impact that that a lot of people are learning about and um, wanting, desiring on the landscape itself. So I'm, I'm definitely encouraged that um, there's groups out there who are doing it across the country. And quite frankly, Hunter, I think and I hope that this conversation's been encouraging for those who have always wondered one what a co-op was but what the benefits are and how to get started on it um so there's there's one last thing i want to ask you and and just it's essentially 
what's like that opening line or that maybe it maybe it's a, of a letter or maybe it's you pick up the phone or you go and introduce yourself to a landowner but what is that like conversation first minute look like for someone who's just kind of nervous to get going but they know they want to provide them that quick breakdown of of how to successfully establish or start a co-op what does that conversation look like well, and I'll start. There's not really any cookie cutter line. Um, I wish there was that silver bullet of, you know, you go to every landowner and you say this and that works. That, right. It just doesn't happen. So I think what I've always tried to do and what I've seen work best is you go up to somebody, you know, shake their hand, maybe not right now. Um, but <laughs> yeah. you, uh, you, you know, have that, you let, the, let their guard down. You ask them, you know, hey, you know, do y'all deer hunt? You know, I heard some shots earlier, do y'all? And they kind of say, you know, no, my son does, or no, my you know, I do, or or we have a hunting club over here, whatever that is. Yep. And you start getting a feel for what they are. They let their guard down. They give you some information about what they're doing, what they like to do, and you can kind of gauge the conversation for which way to go after that. You know, sure. they may say something in that conversation and says, yeah, my my son-in-law shot this last year. They show you a picture on their phone, mm-hmm. or. And so you know where to go and how to navigate that situation based on the cues they're giving you. Sure. And that's, uh, you know, if they say, yeah, well, we practice QDM, well, that's green light. Like, okay, we're in the door as far as like, hey, have you ever heard of co-op? Yep. Or, you know, have you ever heard of these things? Or have you, you know, how big's your property? You know, those kind of things. And then you slowly kind of wade in those waters because you don't want to come off as – I only want to be in this to better myself. Sure. What you yes. want is you want to go up to that property owner, that landowner and say, I want to help you. And if it helps me, great. Yeah. But I want like being selfless in that aspect and having some humility, knowing that not everybody practices what you do. Sure. And whether, you know, I'm per- the perfect person to say, you know, I've always thought, you know, my, the way I manage deer for QDM is, is the best way for me. And, can be a great way for other people, but just understanding and realizing that not everybody does that and that it may take some time for everybody to come around to whatever that great, uh, that perfect management strategy is for them. Um, and knowing how to navigate that to break down barriers and not build barriers, because when you do and you come across too aggressive or you say, well, we only do this or we only do that trying to, to one up that landowner or sure. to force them into feeling that they should, or they're less, lesser than, then that's when you really get into problems and you can't do that. And that is one of those things that I would say is, is a takeaway of, you know, be understanding that some people come from a different era. Yeah, they absolutely. may have grown up practicing a different form of deer management, more traditional deer management and interacting with landowners is, is a, is an art in and of itself. So I think that, that is the best advice I could give. I, I will finish off with one of the best um, kind of things that I ever heard from a co-op member throughout this entire research. Mm-hmm. I talked with 55 co-ops, you know, countless members, read letters, uh, surveys, you know, talked to all the leaders on the phone to get maps because obviously, you know, a lot of these maps are not uh, public property. Sure, um, yeah. Talk to the leaders to get the map of where they're actually their co-op is on this rural landscape. And the best piece of advice I got was from a 29,000 acre cooperative in South Georgia. And he, and I asked, I said, you know, what makes your cooperative so successful? And he said, you know, I can go out and I could spend $500 on food plots 
in two days or a day. Mm-hmm. But every year we have a meeting where I put on a hot, uh, I put burgers on the grill. I put, you know, bring bags of chips and drinks and I have a big cookout, you know, barbecue, whatever it is. And I invite all the property owners in this area over, you know, that are on the co-op and I tell them to bring their friends and I can spend $500 in food and a little bit of my time and have an impact on 29,000 acres, or I can spend $500 on a couple acres of food plots. Sure. And I think that puts it in perspective when you realize just how selfless and, and how you should think about these things of being bigger than your property or bigger than your, yes. you know, your back 40 or whatever that is to start thinking about the landscape and think about others and how your property is a piece and how maybe it can be the cornerstone in that landscape to create these uh, situations with co-ops um, that not only benefit yourself, but will benefit people around you. They'll benefit, benefit your kids, um, your family, um, and you'll create some really amazing relationships along the way. And just being humble and selfless throughout that, that uh, interaction and knowing that it's that you're in it for the greater good that in turn affects your property for the betterment of its own for for the betterment of the land that you're on. I think that's um, a fan, fantastic point. You don't have to physically go and cut trees or go and spray noxious weeds on your co-op members' properties, but you are are a direct beneficiary and and um, point of origin for all that conservation effort that's going out there to all those co-op leaders or all those people who are like wondering well is it worth my time absolutely it's worth your time because without maybe you being a point of contact or you leading or starting this group your region your neighborhood isn't going to be as um, beneficial when we're talking water quality we're talking air quality we're talking um, diversity of rare exotic plant species as well as animals that could be conserved through these efforts that could be on you that could be your impact or your devotion to your region if you love your area this could be something much greater than than the 500 acres that you own get out there and and move beyond let's say that the property boundaries of purple paint that, that your property falls within there's there's a greater and a larger impact that can be made it can't be made without taking those initial efforts. And I think that is a great, um, definitely a great point and, and something to kind of leave people on. But um, is there is there anything else, Hunter, that you would say, um, you know, kind of kind of leave people with from, from what you found through all the research of, of uh, studying these co-ops from across the country? Well, I, I think I've said it a few times, but I would say this, Matt, I, I, they're not all the same. Yeah. They're not all going to start the same, and they're not all going to be, um, you know, monster twenty thousand acre plus co ops. They're not all going to be small co ops. There, there is no cookie cutter. Yep. There is only the only thing they all share in common is a love for the land that they're on and the betterment of leaving it better than they found it. And I think that that is such a huge driving factor in managing deer, turkey, game, non game and the, the land cover and the habitats in which they reside. So I think yes. that that is just that holistic approach and how it really brings together not only the landscape, but the community. And when you have a community buy-in and you have landowners that are, are going down the road and waving at each other, 
they're stopping at tailgates and you know congratulating them on the on the five and a half year old buck they killed that you've been watching for three years because you all have history with it yes. and you are you know you, you've got a kid that is going to kill their first turkey and the turkeys were not there in that amount or that abundance five ten years ago and it was because the co-op formed or it was you know you've got you know you're training a bird dog and they have quail there now because they didn't prior but it's all because of that person starting a co-op or the the people that are instrumental in informing and maintaining the cooperative that create that was created and happened to be in your area so i think that the one thing i would say is don't be don't think that i can't do it when i started the cooperative at my parents house i was 12 years old i went over to the neighbor's property the guy was 50 years old and i said hey you know, I, I, I kind of used the same type thing of, you know, we shot this deer over here. You know, what are y'all doing? They had just bought the property, and it was a handshake of saying, yeah, we, we, we practice the same type of management. And it grew from there, and now it's 1,200 acres. Mm-hmm. Not the largest cooperative in the world. But it was a stepping stone to be able to get to that end goal. And now we sit there, and we, you know, we'll sit in the stand and send pictures back and forth and say, I just saw this nice two-and-a-half-year-old seven-pointer. He's headed your way. You know, like – will get those kind of things happen that you would never have thought it would have happened 10 or 15 years ago. And I think that, you know, just as a parting message, we need these cooperatives are the way of the future. Like you said, yep. you're going to have, um, with increase, I think I read a statistic last, uh, about two years ago. Um, and we were at a, a wildlife society meeting and they said that over 40% of the land in the United States is going to change hands in the next 20 years. Yeah. And I think that that is such an important statistic when you think of the impact that we can have to conserve these lands, but also the importance of relationships, meeting the landowner that bought the property next to you, meeting the landowner that's owned it for 50 years, and being able to conserve these landscapes and then utilizing cooperatives for conservation benefit, not just for producing a a quality mature deer or producing a quail, but for ecosystem services, for water quality, for habitat connectivity. And one thing people don't think about is having a cooperative in place to have an efficient channel of conservation dissemination. If there is a outbreak of CWD, if there is a uh, a concert, a topic of conservation concern, whatever it may be, having landowners willing and ready to be on a landscape, connected to their property, and connected with their neighbor to take on whatever challenges we have in the future for wildlife management is probably the most important reason to continue to form cooperatives. And it's a reason to, that they are going to be integral, integral in the future of wildlife conservation, not just from populations, but from actually conserving that land and leaving it better than you found it for the next generation because we're going to have a lot of fights on our hands with uh, encroachment with mm-hmm. habitat uh, dwindling habitat I mean the, the largest <clears throat> the largest single reason for ha- for species declines across the world is, is loss of habitat and fragmentation and by able, being able to use the enthusiasm of deer hunters, turkey hunters, quail hunters, um, you know, just wildlife enthusiasts or, or the lady down the road that loves her wildflowers and bees. That's right. You are going to be able to conserve landscapes and having those shared interests 
um, for the betterment of the, of the future of that land. Absolutely. I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there in a lot of different ways. It's, it's, um, it's coming. And I think it's the, probably one of the best trends, let's say in wildlife management or trains that you can jump on, be a part of, be a leader on. Um, and you're gonna have a, a fantastic impact and, and, um, the wildlife need it. I mean, they, they really do. The, the landscapes need it. So, um, there's a lot of degraded, uh, properties and things that uh, are just mismanaged that collectively with more education, more presence, more knowledge out there. We can do so much more, um, just from a society standpoint. So I'm encouraged by it, man. And I hope everyone else is too. Um, Hunter, certainly appreciate your time on the podcast and sharing this research and your, uh, just general knowledge and involvement with co-ops, because like I said, they're, a huge important um, factor into wildlife management uh, as we see it right now and, and certainly more into the future. So thank you for coming on and sharing your time and sharing your knowledge. Yeah, no, Matt, it's definitely my pleasure. And, and I will, uh, I'll say this and just kind of a selfless plug here at the end. The research is coming out in quality whitetails. Mm-hmm. Um, it was QDMA and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service funded. Um, so the, the in-depth articles, we're going to have two articles coming out in Quality Whitetails that goes over both parts, the, the landscape and the, the survey. So awesome. for any of your listeners that are QDMA members, we should be coming out with those over the next year. Um, it'll be published, and uh, we, we just had the first accepted pub, uh, paper um, here in the last week and a half. So um, it's going to be disseminated out there. We you know, we've worked on this for the last you know, 2016 to 2018 and so we're nice. just kind of getting it out there and we are uh, excited to to share this research with everybody and you know there's more things coming down the pipeline of, of yeah. to help cooperatives and to kind of help cooperatives not only in these states but across the united states so i think everybody will really get a lot out of those articles and, and the things to come so and if you aren't a qdma member shame on you go sign up you should be a part of that group um be able to get great information through quality whitetails and magazine on a, uh, I guess, bi-monthly basis. So be sure to check that out, guys. Sign up, be a QDMA member. Hunter, thank you again for your time. Guys, we will catch you next week. Yep.